you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 5 to be exact. Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We'll look at verses 17 through 26 this morning. Again, I know we started it last week. We didn't finish it, but we did start it last week. And by God's grace, we we will finish it this week. Um, So Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26 is where we find ourselves this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. And I'm going to ask that if you're physically able to do so, uh, to stand with me one more time as we honor the reading of God's Word and we look at Jesus' power to forgive, His ultimate authority in His power to forgive. Beginning in verse 17, hear the Word of the Lord that is given to you and I. Now it happened on a certain day as He was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on, brought. Uh, on a bed, a man who was, who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and they let him down with his bed through the, tel- through the tiling in the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to them, said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Let's pray. Father, um, as we have approached your word, we now ask for your grace and wisdom. As we come again to this text that we left off from last week, we ask for your help, your aid, your, your, uh, uh, the, the Spirit to empower us to hear and to uh, hear what, the, what is said here and to apply it to the power of the Spirit. And in accordance with the word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It is easy to talk about forgiveness and, and to rejoice in forgiveness when we have received God's forgiveness in Christ, right? We can, we can rejoice in that. Uh, we know the feeling of what that looks like. We know the, the truth behind the, the meaning of God through Christ, by faith, in, through grace, having forgiven us in Christ and Christ alone. It's amazing how we, though, are quick who have received grace. To, we are often so slow to give that grace. And yet, I think that as we think about this, it is imperative that we don't allow this idea of Jesus forgiving our sins to remain theoretical. It needs to be applicable. It needs to be applied to our lives. I remember a story, you may have heard this story too, a, a, a young lady uh, by the name of Corey Tin Boone and her sister Betsy and their, her family uh, were not Jews, but uh, they, were, uh, they were Dutch resistance and they were eventually captured uh, by the Nazis and sent to uh, Ravensbrück, 
which was one of the more notorious camps. And it was there that she encountered a guard by the name of Willem or Wilhelm. And it was there that she was and her sister was, uh, was subjected, like all of the prisoners, to uh, torment and torture and beatings and starvation. Uh, and it wasn't until after she had seen all of her family die, her sister Betsy along with her father and the rest of her family, that God ultimately spared her life, freed her, and she began to talk about how God had, what the things God had done. And, and so it was that she says on one particular Sunday in the bottom, in the basement, uh, Sunday evening, that she was asked to share God's work through her lives and give a testimony. And so she did. And at the end of that testimony, she tells a story of a, of a man who was much older and much bigger, uh, broader, fatter uh, than what he had used to be with bald and graying hair, who came up to her and said to her, thank you for your talk, Fraulein. Uh, it is good, as you say, that God has forgiven us our sins. And so she says that in that moment, she knew exactly who he was. She had not forgotten him. And he was one of the guards that was responsible for ultimately, well, he didn't necessarily beat her sister to death. He was, in fact, responsible for, uh, for looking the other way while her sister sustained a beating that ultimately ended her life. And she said it was in that moment that she, who had been speaking of God's forgiveness, had to put that to the test. And it was in that moment that she said she prayed. And it was in that moment that she knew and realized that she who had been forgiven so much was now required to forgive one who had sinned against her so much. It was in that moment that he began to speak of how he was an evil man before Christ, but that after the war he had, in fact, come to know Christ and Christ's forgiveness and grace. And he asked her publicly in front of the crowd to forgive him. And she said after a few moments, she asked the Lord to help her. And she extended her hand and she said, yes, my brother, I forgive you. Now, that is what it means to know the ultimate authority and the power of Jesus to forgive. As you and I who have known Christ's forgiveness, extend that forgiveness and know that forgiveness, you'd say, well, I've never had anybody sin against me. Yes, but every time we look into the mirror, we see our greatest enemy. Every time we look into the, every time we look into the mirror, we face our greatest enemy. And it's easy for us to talk about even receiving God's forgiveness while never receiving or experiencing, experiencing that reception of God's grace and forgiving and being forgiven by God. And we hold it against ourselves even, perhaps. And yet Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' power to forgive is not limited. And Jesus is calling us to understand forgiveness in a whole new way. And so it is with the man who is the paralytic, this paralytic man who... We, we saw last week how in verses 17 and 18 how his friends were, were begging, uh, were, were, were trying to find a way into the, into the crowd and through the crowd to place their friend there. They couldn't find a way. And so they went up onto the roof and they, they took away the, the, the thatch and then they started peeling away the tiles and they laid him down in the middle of it all. And Jesus forgave him. Jesus forgave his sins. And we talked about the different people who were there. We talked about a scene that was filled with faith and doubt, the faith of, of this man and his four friends and contrasted to and contrasted with the doubts and the 
the, the, um, the questions of the Pharisees and the scribes and the doctors of the law. And we talked about the various people who were there and what they were looking for. Some people were just like us who we, uh, when we see something, we just can't take our eyes away, uh, away from. And we just have to see what was going on and what happened. And we talked about how the Pharisees simply were not just looking at the law as in the Torah, or the Tanakh, the Old Testament as we would call it, but rather upon their own interpretations and their own traditions and based upon what would later become the, uh, what was at the time the oral law that would become the Talmud and the teachings of the Talmud and why that led them then to, to reject Jesus Christ. And in all of this, we said that this was a microcosm of the ministry of Jesus and foreshadowed Jesus' impact. On some, they would repent and look to Christ by God's sovereign grace and believe. Some would reject, some would scoff, some would mock, some would laugh. But we're said, we are told in our text here in verse 17 and 18, and we're told that the power of the Lord was present to heal them meaning the emphasis was on the fact that the Spirit of God was mightily moving in the ministry and life of Jesus. And we said that ultimately this all leads to faith in action, or this is where we pick up, and this is the idea of Jesus being the ultimate authority of, of, of faith in action. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, let's re, re-examine the text. It says, And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed. And, through, and, and he, he, they, they did this, what, through the tiling in the midst and laid him in the midst before Jesus, right? Now, I think it's Mark's gospel. I believe it's Mark's gospel that talks about them taking away, like, the thatch. Here it says tile. So what is it? Well, it's both, right? Uh, there, was, there was both. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a covering there, and then they would take away the tiles that was underneath, and then they laid him down, right? Uh, um, and so this was, a, uh, this was a desperate attempt to get to Jesus. And so we have the friends' determination. Notice their determination. They had absolute confidence that Jesus, if they could just get their friend to Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. They had faith, and their faith was put into action. And you say, well, what kind of action? Was it just bringing the man to Jesus? No, it was the fact that in the midst of this man's situation, they had not abandoned him. They had the faith that they, that they could bring him to Jesus. They could bring him and play him there. Jesus would heal him. Jesus would take care of him. And so they had the faith to uncover the roof even when they couldn't get in. They didn't just give up and say, oh well. They had the faith to lower the paralytic on his mat through the opening that they made. And they had the faith that if they would place the paralytic right in front of Jesus, that he would be saved. It was George Mueller, who was a, a British, uh, uh, British uh, brother in Christ who operated many orphanages, that talks about his faith and his prayers for his friends who needed to know Christ. And he talked about that, that some of them, God answered that right away. And other times, God took years. And it wasn't until his last friend that he had been praying for, for 50 years or so, finally was converted on the day of George Mueller's funeral. And what's my point? My point is, brothers and sisters, is this, is this a sign, a symbol of our faith? Is this the type of faith we have as God's people? Are we confident in Christ and the answer that Christ gives? The answer that even if the answer is no, our confidence still remains in Christ. 
Our confidence doesn't waver because our faith is not based upon our circumstances or the issues that, of life that lie before us, but rather is upon the one who is the creator and the sustainer of our existence. The one who is the rightful ruler, the one who rules in power and in confidence, the one that even though he may say no in this life, we continue to look at him, trusting him for our future. So why is there a, why, 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 why are these people's, these friends and, and this man's faith so determined? Because they knew ultimately the power of Jesus. They ultimately knew the power of Jesus. And because of what Jesus will do next, the text, though it doesn't state this explicitly, I believe implicitly does, impl- it does imply that this man and his friends knew exactly who Jesus was. That Jesus wasn't just some miracle worker because Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the man doesn't balk at this. His friends don't balk at this. It's the Pharisees and the scribes and it's the religious leaders who balk at this. The man is, the man is in awe. doesn't say anything. And so it is, in fact, this, the, the faith of this man who knows that they, if he can just get to Jesus, Jesus will answer his petition. And Jesus responds to this man's faith. He recognizes his faith, right? It's what he says. It says, Jesus saw this, this faith, this, this, this man's faith and this friend's faith who brought him, right? I've heard stories. I think I told you this last week. I've heard, I've heard whole sermons about the faith of these four men. But it wasn't the faith of these four men It was the faith of these four men and ultimately the faith of the man who was brought on the bed who was paralyzed and could not move. Jesus does see their faith. Jesus also sees the faith of the paralytic. And what is the unexpected result? Now, sure, we have the absolute confidence from the text that they wanted Jesus to heal this man. But Jesus does something a little different here, doesn't he? He doesn't say, first and foremost, rise, take up your bed, and walk like he's done in the past. Instead, what does he do? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Why in the world would Jesus start out a conversation with this man after seeing this man and his friend's faith? Why in the world would Jesus not just say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Go home. Why does Jesus instead say, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Well, I would say two things. First, Jesus, or I'm sorry, the man, as the son of Adam, his greatest need was the need for salvation. Absolutely. I mean, no, no, no question about it. The man's greatest need was that of coming to know Jesus Christ as, in a saving way. That was his most important need. And so that was the most important thing that Jesus met. But Jesus also uses this as an opportunity not only to let the man know of his new, brand new uh, relationship with God through Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, but he also uses it, Jesus also uses it to prove his claim as the Messiah. You say, what do you mean? Well, didn't Jesus just say what? but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. I say to them, he said to the man, rise, get up and walk. 
And I think there's another reason for this even, why Jesus said this. It's that, what was, the con- what was Jesus confronting the prevailing thought of? What was, the confront- what was he confronting the prevailing thought of the day? What-, what was the understanding? That this man was paralyzed due to sin. And Jesus confronts that directly by saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask you. I don't know if you're like the paralyzed man who has no relationship to the Father through the Son. I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe maybe you're not. Maybe Maybe you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But let me ask you this. How are you coming to Christ? With confidence? With faith? Yes, I would say even if it is completely mixed with doubt, like the father who brought the son to Jesus and said, nobody can heal him. Lord, if you can, and Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible with those who believe. And he says, the father says what? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So even if we come as the Father, we come in faith, but also realizing our weakness and doubting, we can say, are we coming to Jesus despite our fears and our doubts with confidence that the God of heaven, whom we trust and know, will answer us, even if the answer is no? You see, a lot of times we talk about God giving us unanswered prayers God doesn't give unanswered prayers he either says yes or no and the no may be well not right now later but it's still a no so God answers yes or no there are no such things as unanswered prayers God doesn't deal in unanswered prayers God answers all prayers he answers them with a yes or a no are you seeking him with confidence are you seeking his will for your life in confidence? Are you, spe- are you seeking your spiritual healing and forgiveness in confidence? We are told in the book of Hebrews to come boldly to the throne of grace. And there we may find the, the grace that we need in those times of need. Are you coming to Christ? Are you coming to Christ with boldness and faith? Not disrespectfully, not irrespective of who he is, but are you coming even in the midst of your doubts and your fears and your not understanding life and the, the hand that, that God has allowed to be dealt with you like with Job? Are you coming but still trusting and confidence and steadfastness? Or perhaps you're coming and saying, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we have a Savior who, can, who is not untouched by our suffering, but rather a Savior who knows our suffering, He knows our fears, He knows our anxiety, and as a matter of fact, He has been tempted and tested in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And so we find the controversy of forgiveness here in verses 21 through 23, right? Because to the man, this wasn't anything. To the man, he never, he never says, well, wait a minute, Jesus, I came to you for healing and you gave me forgiveness of sin. It's not what he says. What does he say? He says, nothing. What is it that gets said, though? Well, there's a controversy, right? There's a controversy that breaks out immediately, right? You get, you get three people in a room, you get five opinions, 
Well, this is the case with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the doctors of the law and the teachers. All of a sudden, they hear him, they hear Jesus forgiving sins. People will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Let me tell you 100%. Jesus here saying, son, your sins are forgiven, is a direct claim to deity. So don't tell me Jesus never claimed to be God. By saying, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is making direct application and direct parallels to the Father and saying, I have the power to forgive, therefore I am the same as I am. And so they begin to question and murmur, right? And so in Jewish theology, the ability to forgive sin was exclusively something that only God, Yahweh, could do. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law held the belief that only God could forgive sins. And since sin by nature is an offense against God, it was God's right to forgive. And so they were expecting, so they weren't expecting a Messiah who would come down and say, well, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. What were they wanting? They were wanting a Messiah to deliver them socially and politically. We, we know the people, we know people like that still today. They, they come to Jesus and they expect Jesus to be their political and social deliverer. They don't want the Messiah of Scripture. They don't want the God of the Bible. They want something from him or him to do something for him. Listen, let me be honest with you. God is not a puppet. Jesus is not a puppet that you pull on the strings and he dances for you. Jesus isn't a, a puppet that he dances when I pull on his strings for me. Jesus does not act in accordance with our wishes, wants, or desires. Jesus instead is the God of the Bible. He is the, one of the members of the Godhead. And he claimed absolute divine authority to forgive sins. And this was just too much for the religious people, the religious leaders. And this is why they charge him with blasphemy. Now listen. To us, right, we, we, like if you, you hear people all the time, well, that's blasphemy. Well, and if you ask most people, well, what does that even mean? Well, they're like, well, that just means like false teaching. No, no, no. Blasphemy, false teaching, they could be the same, but they may not be the same. So what, what, what is it here that, that this idea, well, this is very serious. Because under Jewish law, blasphemy carried the death penalty, both in Old Testament and in New Testament. Blasphemy carried the death penalty. And so by claiming the authority to forgive sins, Jesus was assuming a role that was reserved only for Yahweh. And by doing this, he was making this bold, clear declaration, I am God in flesh. And in doing this, he was making himself equal to God. Do you see why the Jewish leaders were like, how dare he make such a claim? Only God can forgive sins. To which Jesus would then answer them, exactly. No, he doesn't say the word exactly, but that is his point. This was a serious violation of Jewish law. If Jesus wasn't who he says he was, then this was a serious violation. And Jesus was aware, right? It's, it's, it's amazing because Jesus is automatically aware. As soon as, as soon as they start questioning among themselves, he knows exactly what they're saying among themselves. And so he says to them, hey, why are, you, why are you reasoning like this? Why are you saying these? Why are you asking these questions? Right? And what is their, what is their response? What is their response? Well, 
They don't have time, right? Because in verse 23, what does Jesus say? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, rise up and walk. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus knows their thoughts. Jesus knows their intentions. Jesus knows their doubts. Jesus knows their skepticism. Jesus is aware of their thoughts. Jesus knows all about them. He created them after all. Like There's nothing that they're going to be able to keep from him, right? There's nothing, nothing, nothing that they're going to be able to hide from their creator. But notice something. There is a deeper, deeper implication in Jesus' question here. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, there's two things. One is that in, by asking them this question, what he was doing was challenging not only their understanding, but their authority. Their understanding and their authority, which is why Jesus says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are, why are you reasoning like this in your hearts? And in saying this, Jesus is, is challenging the Pharisees and he's challenging the scribes and he's challenging them and he's saying, listen, what you have believed about my work and what you believe about my work, my authority and my claims to be Messiah, you don't get, you don't quite understand. You've never, even though you search the scriptures, Jesus would say, and you think you, you have salvation in them, you, you don't know them because they point to me. The scriptures point to me. They point to my claims here. And so Jesus is challenging them. And Jesus will even say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, are you a, are you a teacher in Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Jesus is, again, getting to the challenge of, of Nicodemus as well as the other Pharisees and the scribes and the other religious leaders saying, basically, listen, if you can't understand this, what in the world are you doing teaching? What are you doing teaching the law? You have completely misunderstood it. And so the, the question that Jesus asks and poses goes beyond the surface level of all of their preconceived notions about who he is. And, he, and, and by doing this, he challenges them to understand that Jesus isn't some just another rabbi or religious teacher, another guy, another prophet, but rather Jesus is by very implication what? Emmanuel. God with us. And so he demonstrates then his divine authority. He says, well, you know what? So you guys are reasoning like this. You don't believe I have the authority. So which is easier? Which is easier to say? And then he says, guess what? Let me exercise my divine authority so that you understand and know that I have the right to do what I have just done in forgiving this man's sin. So he exercises this divine authority. That's what he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Right? It's pivotal. That's a pivotal statement here. He refers to himself as the what? This is, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself in Luke. The Son of Man. It's a messianic title. And by employing this messianic title, he is asserting his divine prerogative to not only forgive, but his divine right and ability to heal this man. And that's why he says, this is why the, he says uh, that he has power, right, on earth to forgive sins. He, again, he's directly challenging the religious leader's beliefs. It's a claim of divine authority, not just in the spiritual realm, but now manifested on earth. And so then he does a sign. He does a sign. Now, is this sign 
for his own interests? No, I mean, he does ultimately prove, right, who he says he is by doing this, is what he says. But in reality, the miracle was a sign to those around him that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. It's a visible sign of the invisible reality. Jesus was providing a tangible proof of his claim to be able to forgive sins at this point. So much so that when he says to the man, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house, and he does this immediately, it's an absolute visible demonstration of Jesus, that Jesus' words have power and authority, and that his claims to be God in flesh is, or are true. And so much so that what ends up happening here? Everybody's astonished, right? They're amazed. They, they are left saying, what in the world have we just seen today? This, this defies all comprehension, all logic, all reason. This, this, this goes beyond anything that we've ever even heard of. We've never even seen God work like this ever or heard God's working like this ever That's what it says. It says that we have seen strange things today. We have seen some very interesting things. And notice that the crowd, notice that the crowd's reaction is very different from Jesus, from the Pharisees' reaction. And notice, notice you have several different reactions here. You have the reaction of the man and his friends who Jesus forgives his sin and he heals. He gets up and goes away and he obeys Jesus. You have the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Sadducees, and they're like, whatever. This is nuts. I don't believe any of it. It's parlor tricks, and we're not going to accept this guy. And then you've got the crowd that says, I don't quite know what we just saw or what we just witnessed, but we know that it is something different than anything else we have ever seen or heard from. And in reality, every time you and I present the gospel, these are the reactions that we will receive. Every time we present the gospel, either there will be those who hear and God through, the, through His sovereign grace by the drawing of the Spirit of God through the gospel will ultimately draw sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Or there will be those who scoff and laugh and mock and say, get out of here with that junk. Or you'll have those who are saying, ah, you know, I don't quite know what to do with this yet. I'm thinking about it, but I don't really know. But I think this crowd, really, this, the, each one of these responses really do serve, serve as, as just the typical reaction that we get, not just in Jesus' ministry, but Jesus' ministry through us now, today, as the, chur- as, the, as the church. The crowd did, even though they said, listen, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but we know it's from God, and so they were amazed and they glorified Him. And it's significant in this context of Jesus' ministry, of his ongoing ministry. His crowds get larger and larger until they just don't. And the crowd's amazement and fear, I think, really do suggest that they recognize something divine in Jesus' actions and words. They not only witnessed the miraculous healing, but they were confronted with a display of divine authority in their very midst. So how, how, how would we say this applies for us then today? Well, uh, let me say this. First and foremost, believer, uh, let, let me say this. We need to always remember that faith without works is dead. Believers, we are called to show our faith by our actions and our confidence in Christ, even if there is very little. Remember what Jesus would often say to his own disciples, Oh, you of little faith. But he never says, Oh, you of no faith. He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And at times he says the same thing to us. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? He says the same thing to me. He says the same thing to us. But even if we are of little faith, we can come confidently in the knowledge and the power of God himself. Trusting him, believing him, following him. Even when it hurts and we don't understand it, we trust him. I think we also have to understand that there is within this, this, this story that's given to us, this, this encounter that happens, this real encounter that happens between Jesus and the paralyzed man and his friends. I think there's a, there really is a, a highlight here of the power of intercessory action here. As believers, we are reminded of the importance of praying and sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ with those who do not know Jesus Christ and not giving up because we simply do it once and say, okay, well, now I've done my job. We are called upon to be intercessors for those who cannot intercede for themselves. Through our actions and through our prayers, through the sharing of the gospel with our friends and family members who do not know Christ, We're called to bring them to Christ. Ultimately, it is between the Lord. It's it's for the Lord to decide what what he does and what he isn't going to do. But at the same time, that doesn't alleviate us from the responsibility of preaching and teaching the gospel, of sharing the gospel with our friends, of loving our neighbors enough to share the gospel with them. How much do you have to hate somebody to never tell someone about the gospel and let them slip into hell? How much do you absolutely have to hate somebody? How much do you absolutely, do I absolutely have to hate someone to never share the gospel with them? We are called instead to be intercessory, intercessors. And so we recognize Jesus' authority on earth. And we pray this, by the way, Christian. We pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we should expect that God will answer this prayer. We should expect that the gospel will move forward powerfully among the nations. We should expect that to rejoice when it is fully said that the nations of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And we pray and we work and we preach and we teach and we plead with men and women and boys and girls to come to faith in Christ And we pray that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we must submit every single bit of our lives to the lordship of Christ. And you and I must exercise and revel and exercise in the power of forgiveness. Because again, it's so easy to come here and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. But what about those who have sinned against us? Are we also taught to pray and forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? Jesus will go so far as to say, if you don't forgive men their sins against you, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying I have that figured out. I'm not saying that that's fun. I'm not saying that I understand it fully. But I do understand this. I understand what Corey Tin Boone at times meant when she said that in that moment when that man stuck his hand out that she felt nothing. And in that moment all she could say is, God, I'm going to shake this man's hand but I feel nothing but hate for this man. Change my heart. 
And in that moment, he did. And in that moment, forgiveness was granted and healing was able to come. I say the same thing to us, believer. We answer by grace, in grace, through faith, by the power of the Spirit. We don't offer forgiveness of sins in our own power or our own strength. But we who have been forgiven much must forgive much. This is why when Peter comes to Jesus and says, Hey, uh, Jesus, uh, can I forgive my brother seven times? Jesus says, No, 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 no. I don't say to you seven times. And he says, I say to you, 70 times seven. That's when I was a kid, I used to do the math and think, Well, see, there you go. I could only have to forgive people that much. But the reality is, is that's not Jesus' point. It's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that we have been forgiven much, forgive much. And I know that's hard. And sometimes the hardest person to forgive is the man or the woman that we see staring back at us in the mirror. Let God's grace and forgiveness and healing be your experience, believer. Lastly, let me close with this. Unbeliever, let me say this. If you're here and don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me say this. You cannot overcome your debts that you owe to God. You cannot overcome them. You cannot overcome your debts. Your debts must be paid. And Jesus is the only way to pay those debts. Jesus is the only way, the only one who can pay your debts. And he has, he has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave on the cross and extends forgiveness to all who will come to him in faith, by faith. So come to him. Come to him. Trusting him, looking to him, believing, not on your works, but on his works that he has accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we have looked at this morning. Not only the truth of the fact that you have the power to forgive, but God, even the, the power that you have to enable us who have been sinned against to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, we don't come to you, recognize, we don't come to you expecting that that's easy. We don't come to you expecting that we fully are able to do this. We know that we can't. But God, we who have been forgiven much are called to forgive. So help us, those of us who have experienced your grace and forgiveness, to forgive those who have sinned against us. May you truly forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But we also pray in that same understanding as you taught us to pray, Lord Jesus, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me close with the prayer of the Lord Jesus that said, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.